Father, whether we live or whether we die, may we be yours always. In Jesus' name. Our text this morning comes from the book of Romans, where we have journeyed to the seventh chapter there. And the message will attempt to deal with the entire chapter, and we could read the entire chapter, but we'll read instead verses 1 to 9 and 18 to 25. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's word. Do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. A married woman is bound to her by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And then down to verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but my ability does not carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. 
We are journeying through the book of Romans. We've come here to the seventh chapter, and in verse 18 and 19, Paul articulates what our underlying problem is. You might remember, I've shared with you before, that the London Times, over a century ago, asked uh, some of the luminaries of that day to write an essay, all assigned the same title, The Problem of the World Is, and famously, G.K. Chesterton sent his essay back with only one sentence. He said, the problem of the world is me. In verses 18 and 19, Paul gives an elaboration of Chesterton's insight. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the vision, I have the idea, I have the understanding of what is right, but I seem to not have the capacity, the ability to to enact it in my life. That is my dilemma. Now, Paul explains why he has that problem in verse 20. He says, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What a statement. Paul is apparently saying that At least Pauline anthropology says that we are all split personalities. There's me, and then there's something else in me. And he says that something else is sin. Notice the word, though, that this sin dwells in him. There is a sense in which sin invades us. It attacks us from outside. But there is also a sense in which we're comfortable with it. It takes root in us, it camps out in us, it resides in us, it dwells in us. We have sin deeply rooted in us, and that's the underlying problem of our life. A classic literary depiction of this split personality comes in Robert Louis Stevenson's novella. It's only about 80 pages long. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Stevenson is, of course, a 19th century Scottish writer, famous for writing some books, which, if you are like me, were among the first full-length books you read and you delighted in them, books like Treasure Island and Kidnapped. I wonder, though, if you've ever read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I found out this week that over 100 films and TV movies have been made about it. There's even been a Broadway musical. I've seen a Bay Area production of it years ago. You basically know the story. But uh, as with most things like this, the uh, original has some nuances and some trails that at least uh, no movie that I've seen depicts. I picked up some insights which are far more profound in Stevenson's original. And uh, you know the story. Uh, Dr. Jekyll is an upright upstanding citizen, but he came to understand that there was what he calls inside of himself an incongruous compound. There was an evil self and there was a good self, and he felt that these two were eternally at war with one another. He could aspire to do good things, but he could never accomplish them and follow through with them, so he comes up with an idea to create or to invent a potion which will split these two selves into two different individuals. He intends to drink the potion at night so that the evil self can come out, but during the day, the good self will be pristine, 
and will be able to accomplish uh, undiluted and undragged down everything that it needs to accomplish. It will be free from the influence of evil. Now, so closely does uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde trace some of the themes in Romans 7. I tried to discover this week whether or not there was a one-for-one influence on Stevenson's life, and I... I'm going to come up with a cautious conclusion that there was, though uh, there's certainly no hard and fast evidence. Stevenson was born in a devout Church of Scotland family. He spent his many of his early holidays with his uh, grandfather, Church of Scotland, preacher, minister. Stevenson wrote about those days, I often wonder what I inherited from my grandfather, that old Minister, He was fond of preaching sermons. And as a writer, I guess so am I. And then perhaps many of you can identify with the next thing Stevenson writes. Though I never heard it said that either of us liked very much to listen to sermons. Some of you might be able to identify with this. I was disappointed to discover, though, that as a young man, Stevenson seems to have left whatever boyhood faith he had in the faith of his family. During his uh, young adult years, early 20s, he joined together in Edinburgh with five other youth to found a club. I think that was fashionable in that time. And their motto was, disregard everything our parents taught us. He started living what my source calls a bohemian life. Apparently that included growing your hair long. He looked a little bit like a frail Edgar Allan Poe. He uh, affected velvet jackets, whatever that meant, and lived a rather profligate life visiting brothels and what, uh, at least in my youth, we call a swinging lifestyle. His father said to him when he learned of it, you have rendered my whole life a failure. And his mother said, this is the heaviest affliction that has ever befallen me. So in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Stevenson touches upon many of the same themes that we've heard in chapter 7. It's a terrifying book. It's a terrifying story. Stephen looked upon our lives as a battlefield between good and evil. He said that we all have virtuous selves who want to deny our selfish natures, and we all have a kind of grasping, self-centered, selfish side. He said, or rather he has his character, Dr. Jekyll, say, if each self could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that is unbearable about it. So Dr. Jekyll goes about trying to and successfully create a compound, a potion, which will separate his two selves. Stevenson calls that second self Mr. Hyde. And I never really understood that until this week. But he calls him Mr. Hyde clearly because what he discovers in himself is so hideous. And because the true depth and nature of it, we keep, we deny it. We keep it hidden from ourselves. The first moment that Dr. Jekyll uh, takes the potion and becomes Mr. Hyde, Jekyll says, looking back on it, at the first breath of this new life, I knew myself sold a slave to my original evil, tenfold more wicked than I knew myself to be before. The thought 
embraced and delighted me like wine. Of course, what ends up happening is that Jekyll finds he can't control Hyde. Edward Hyde wins. Jekyll understands a good and a bad, but when he actually gets underneath it, he finds that the evil is far worse and far more powerful than he ever knew. Now, some people think incorrectly that this is the Christian view of human anthropology, this ongoing warfare and struggle between two selves, the good self and the bad self, and what we need to do is try very, very hard to let the good self win out. Paul says the main solution people try to bring on this dilemma simply doesn't work. It has to do with trying very hard to subdue the evil by the moral law. In his appendix to the abolition of man, uh, C.S. Lewis has a, has a very helpful table. He goes through moral laws in Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, and he shows there's a remarkable congruence between them. They aren't identical, but there is a deep overlapping of a moral code by which people try to shape and lead their lives. But Paul says there's something resolutely tragic about that, and he explains it in verse 5. He writes, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. There seems to be something about the law which doesn't so much give us a tool to overcome sin in our life, but which aggravates it, which incites it, which makes it work worse. Draw a line in the sand and, and tell a child not to cross over, and they may not for a season, but they will be tempted to. Something will arise in their nature. I would, I would sometimes go right up to the curve that I wasn't to go out on and put my foot just as close to it as I could and look back at my mother like that. Uh, Augustine, in his Confessions, tells about this principle. He tells about stealing a pear in an orchard. He didn't like pears. He wasn't hungry. But he heard the command, don't take a pear from your neighbor's orchard. And as soon as he had that, that the desire to steal it was quickened in his heart. Uh, he writes, until someone said, thou shalt not. I had no interest in pears. But once they said, don't take those pears, I wanted them. There is deep in our nature something that lives there that says, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. I want to be the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship. Instead of shriveling up the power of sin, there is this aspect of law which seems to aggravate it and incite it. Now, Paul gives an autobiographical illustration of this in verses 8 and 9. He says, I was alive apart from the law, but then one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, came home and slew me. Apart from the law, I was spiritually alive. What does he mean by that? I, I'm going to read that a bit metaphorically. We speak uh, right now that the hopes for the uh, San Francisco Giants to repeat their World Series victory is alive. It's a possibility. It can be there. 
Uh, later on in the season, that possibility might be taken away, but it's alive. Um, we can look at so many of the external things in the law. I haven't murdered anybody yet. I haven't committed adultery yet. Stephanie will be pleased to hear that. Uh, I haven't bowed my knees down to any idols this morning, but then when Paul came to one of the laws that was less external and more internal, thou shalt not covet, he looked inside his heart and he saw a whole array of forces, of angers, of rebellions, of selfishness, of desires. A mirror was... uh, lifted up to him, and he saw it all, and he says, it slew me. Now, I said the uh, films and TV movies and musical, for that matter, that I've seen of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde didn't, uh, didn't have some of the nuances and profound turns that the novella has. And there's one particularly remarkable passage that I have not seen uh, replicated and any of the secondary sources on it. I think it's uh, Stevenson's most profound insight in it. Mr. Hyde gets out of control. He finally murders someone, and Dr. Jekyll in his right mind is horrified by that, and he, um, he determines to bring an end to the experiment. Mr. Hyde will be no more. I will subdue him. I will take no more potion. And uh, I will live according to the law. I will live well. I will live righteously. I will live right. And for weeks and for three months, he succeeds. And then uh, sitting on a park bench in Regent Park, Jekyll writes on one fine, clear January day, I reflected on my conduct of the last few months and smiled. Comparing myself with other people, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of others' neglect of their fellow man. At the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and dreadful shuddering, and I looked down. And I saw that once again, without the potion. I had become Edward Hyde. Now, what I think Stevenson is encapsulating in that moment is that there are two ways that the sin which dwells in us can take us over. One is by rebelling against the law, by breaking the law, by wanting our own way. And the other is by attempting to keep it and keep it in such a fashion that it becomes my master on the basis of this. I am justified, I am righteous, I am right, I am better than others. We can have sin break out in us either by breaking the law or by keeping it and becoming a kind of Pharisee. I'm not like other people. So who will deliver us from this bondage of death? Apparently not my notes. Uh, thanks be to God that in Jesus Christ he has delivered me. But, uh, so Paul does give an indication right at the beginning of the chapter of 
of what the way out is, what the success is. And he uses a powerful image. It is the image of marriage. It says that we are at first married to the law, but we are in Christ to have a new spouse. Are we to break the law? Are we to ignore the law? No, we are to obey it. We are to follow it. We are to care about it. We are to honor it. But we are not to be married to it. In marriage, we are given our self-identity. We are, uh, we are deeply formed in a way as to who we are. Uh, there's a wonderful PBS series, if this is by way of a commercial, let it be, uh, called The Midwives. And there's a, a, a tall, clumsy, awkward midwife by the name of uh, Chummy who, against all odds, becomes is one of the romantic characters of the film. A, a shorter, also pudgy policeman falls deeply in love with her. Chummy's a wonderful person. She's a great midwife, and she has a, has a radiant soul. Uh, but she's awkward and clumsy and tall, and but this... Short policeman sees it in her, and the two of them come together and are deeply in love. And uh, they're a beautiful couple, and the radiance that is inside Chummy is recognized and reflected in her husband. We see them fall in love and married, and now one of the joys of the series is uh, to see this couple together, their appreciation of one another, and the beauty that is inside each of them. It's kind of released for us all to see in their love one for another. We are, we are partly made who we are in the reflection of the eyes of someone else who loves us. If we are living our lives out of fear that we need to keep the law, that we need to justify ourselves, we're caught, we're trapped. But if we're married to Christ, we are given a whole... New reason to obey and follow the law. It is a, it's a reason of gratitude, not fear. Uh, yesterday, Carlina Speed was married many states away. I think one of the mistakes of my life was not to have made the effort probably to have gone there. But in that ceremony, Don Dent shared with me what uh, he read before he proposed to his wife. He didn't read it to her at the time, but in their marriage ceremony, this was read by Michael, Dr. Michael Foster to then Carlina, Miranda, Carlina Speed. It's uh, kind of a concatenation of loves, lives which have been captured and married to Christ and lives which have been captured and called to go on mission for Christ. And so yesterday, Dr. Foster read to now Mrs. Foster this 19th century poem. It says, I go through perils of land and sea where man in idolatry bows the knee. I go to a land where darkness reigns and slavery forges, forges her direst chains. From kindred far and from social glee, friend of my heart, wilt thou come with me? I don't imagine there are dry eyes in the house. To sound through the adverse camp and alarm, to seek in his strongholds the foe to disarm, to dare the assault with many or few, to hope against hope 
and though faint to pursue, not even in the mortal conflict to thee, sister in Christ, wilt thou go with me? Or prepare by a dying couch to stand and mourn alone in a stranger land all earthly things that must precious be to risk for thy Lord? Wilt thou go with me? And then the bride would have replied, Is there a danger I might not share, a sorrow with thee that I could not bear? Nor perils around me, nor griefs from above can rival the might of deathless love. In the flood, in the flame, no terrors I see. I go for my Lord, and I go with thee. The remedy to our lives, the remedy to the sin that dwells within us, Paul is saying in this profound and complex chapter, is don't be married to the law. Serve it out of gratitude, not out of fear, because you're married to Christ. I don't know. Uh, I think history is ambiguous about what happened to Robert Louis Stevenson. He he did die as a fairly young man on Samoa, on an island there. He was uh, made friends with uh, some Christians there, native Christians, and it was their custom to have a prayer at the end of every day. And uh, they would frequently meet at Stevenson's house. He wrote some of the prayers for them, and they're published. You can see them online, the prayers from Valhalla. Uh, Valima, Valhalla's a, a Wagner opera. Valima and Samoa, the prayers of Valima and Samoa. So here is just one of them. We beseech thee, Lord, to behold us with favor, a fold of many families and nations gathered under this roof. Go with each of us to rest, and when the day returns to us, our son and our comforter call us up with morning faces and with morning hearts. We thank thee and praise thee in the name of him to whom this day is sacred. We close our prayers. It sounds to me like at the end of his life he discovered something of the faith of his family of his youth. I think he discovered something, how much I don't know, I hope a lot, of what it is to fall in love with Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. Falling in love with Christ, being married to him, so as was sung for us at our offering, offertory, and our anthem. Embrace Jesus, hold fast to Jesus, trust Jesus, treasure Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, love Jesus, let Jesus be the passion of your life. Living and holy God, we uh, do confess that we have seen a mirror of who we are. Uh, two selves struggling at war and left to our own devices, our own strength. We know we fail. Mr. Hyde wins. We are thankful that that isn't what Christianity is about that we are invited to a whole new way with a whole new will, with a whole new strength, with a whole new power by falling in love with, by giving our life to, by attaching ourselves not to our righteousness and not to our way, not to our will, or even the will of the law, but to the strength and will and person and presence of Jesus Christ. May we treasure and embrace and hold on to and 
fellowship with and fall in love with Christ our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray.